And happy Sabbath, church family. I hope it truly is a happy Sabbath for you. At least we're going to do our best to get us off to a good start this morning. Sometimes when I hear the term morning devotional, though, I'll tell you that um, it's not that the expectations are low, but there is a certain expectation of what you're going to hear at a morning devotional. Sometimes I think of things like it's going to be general soft platitudes, warm fuzzy things, lambs, children, you know, those kind of things, which are good. We want to be inspired. We want to be uh, eased into our day, if you will. But the messages that I intend to present this, this morning and the rest of our time together are perhaps not so much morning devotionals as morning challenges. Uh, we're going to be studying the Word of God, hopefully in a way that will be both interesting, but more than just interesting and inspiring, they will be truly challenging. They will confront us with our need and see our need of Jesus more clearly. I like preaching series of sermons, um, each message having its own particular point while contributing to a larger overall framework of messages and the morning devotionals here at camp meeting provide just such an opportunity. This week we'll spend some time studying the early church experience as recorded in the book of Acts. Our approach will be generally chronological, though not dogmatically so. The intent is to find lessons that can apply to our lives today, what I like to call first-generation lessons for last-generation believers. I truly, truly believe that Jesus is coming soon. I don't mean that in a hollow kind of cultural tradition, that's just what you say kind of way. I believe that in my lifetime and in the lifetime of many of the people in this room, we will see Jesus before we taste death. And if that is truly something we believe, it behooves us to be the people he wants us to be, to do the work he wants us to do, and hasten that soon coming that we all look forward to so well. So before we get started in any study of God's Word, I would ask that we begin with just a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you this beautiful Sabbath morning for another day of life at all. Lord, you give your sunshine to both the wicked and the righteous. You're very good, God. And Lord, even before redemption, we owe you this life, but Lord, you sent your only Son to give us the hope of eternal life. And for that, we should be eternally grateful. So Lord, as we come into your presence this morning, we, we expect great things, not for we ourselves are great, but you are great. And we trust that there is instruction from on high that you want to give us through your word this morning. So Lord, I would ask right now that you would sharpen our minds to understand and you would soften our hearts to receive, that we may become the people you want us to be and hasten your soon coming. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's study in the book of Acts, you would think, oh, we're going to go to Acts 1 or Acts 2. We're not going to go to the book of Acts at all yet. We'll get there later in the message. But I want to begin our study in the book of Acts this morning, actually in the book of Luke. So if you take out your Bibles, I was going to say, if you have your Bibles, but this is the early morning devotion crowd. You have your Bibles, amen? Luke chapter 10 I'm going to start with verse 25. Jesus often 
had encounters with people who would try to test him, to try to paint him into a corner to make his life hard and confuse his mind. And here we see this such occasion. Luke chapter 10, we're going to start with verse 25. Scripture reads, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and did what? Tested him. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let's pause and understand. This is a lawyer, not as we understand. This is not esquire or attorney at law in a civil legislative kind of way. We're talking about a religious lawyer, someone who is a scholar in the law of God. He was a student of Scripture, and he was there purposefully to test Jesus Christ on the Scripture. Now you understand, of course, that Jesus Christ was the author of Scripture, so maybe he didn't know who he was up against, but he was there to test him, and this was his question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? What does it say and what do you understand it to mean? So he turns the question back around on the lawyer questioner, and in verse 27, the lawyer gives the answer to his own question. Verse 27, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, before proceeding any farther, we are probably familiar with that. Oh, what's the... What do I have to do in inherit eternal life? And we could rattle that off. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. But we likely know that construction from this man's answer. This man didn't have the New Testament yet. He was still part of it being written. He got his answer from the Old Testament. And what's fascinating, the answer that he gives, you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, is not a single passage in the Old Testament. That's a synthesis of different passages woven together to create a bigger principle. The first part comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, where the, the scripture says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But the second part comes from a more obscure passage. Go to the book of Leviticus, if you will. Leviticus chapter 19, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Chapter 19 and verse 18. This comes in the midst of a litany of policies that were to govern the people of God, the children of Israel. And in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, notice the passage. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he took the principle from Leviticus 19.18, wove it together with the policy of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, and in there in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer synthesizes these together and says this is what the law teaches is our duty. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't have the scrolls with him. He knew it in his head. He was familiar with the scripture. He was, in fact, a lawyer, a scholar in the word of God. So when Christ asked him that question, he was ready with an answer. So let's go back to Luke chapter 10. What is Christ's response to this man's answer? Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered how? Rightly. 
He didn't just say you've answered well. He said you gave the right answer. It's not just a good answer. It doesn't just pass. It's exactly right. In fact, one other way we can know that this is the right answer besides Jesus himself saying it is that this is the answer Jesus himself gave. When on another occasion he was tested, look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, starting with verse 34. Jesus again is approached, tried to put in a corner. Chapter 22, verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So it's almost you get a lineup of enemies, one here, one there, the Sadducees versus the Pharisees versus Jesus Christ, and it's a they gather together, they huddle, what's the best thing we can attack him with? And this is what they came up with, verse 35. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when we go to Luke chapter 10, we see the lawyer's answer isn't just a good answer. It's not just the right answer. It is, in fact, Jesus' own answer to that question. He is familiar with the law of God. He's conversant at it. He knows exactly what he's talking about. So we go to Luke chapter 10, and again, Jesus said, verse 28, he answered and said to him, you have answered rightly. Now watch what he adds. Do this and you will live. Now put into practice what you know from the word of God and you will live. Do it and you will live. And then verse 29 is the key. But he, look at this next phrase, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? This man is brilliant. He has the scroll of scriptures in his mind. He has the principles understood clearly. He can articulate and go toe-to-toe with Jesus himself on the content and context of God's word. Yet when Christ simply says, you're right, now go and do it, all of a sudden he gets really confused. As if to say, you know, I would put it into practice if only I understood better what it was teaching. Who is my name? If I could just figure that out, then I would be doing it. So Jesus tells what we know is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is beautiful, it's wonderful, it's, it's necessary. The Lord put it into his word for many of us who needed to hear it, but for this one individual, the one to whom he was speaking, it seems that it was an unnecessary parable. He already knew who his neighbor was. The Bible tells us why he asked the question. It wasn't for lack of information. It was a lack of application. So Jesus goes to the story and walks him through, and you know the story well. We can just recap it. You understand. But look at the end of the parable. Verse 36, it's almost like Jesus is telling a children's story to this scholar. After he walks through each of the characters, and it's so clear and obvious, he comes to verse 36, so, he asks, which of these three 
do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? He has to admit the truth. And he said to him, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The story of the Good Samaritan was told to someone who already understood the moral. And sadly, that encounter with the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 was not the first time that Jesus encountered otherwise brilliant men, scholars in their own right, who when it came to the practical applications of the teachings they even knew, they became somewhat dim-witted, slow-minded, unable to comprehend. I think of John chapter 3. Let's go there together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John chapter 3. You know this story well. Nicodemus, starting with verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, what's that next word? No. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he had been, just like others, he had been conferring with his other Pharisee friends and he had come by night. He was trying to separate Jesus and really get in there and who knows, maybe talk philosophy or politics or, or, or other things. But notice where Jesus goes with it right away. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Must have knocked him on his heels a little bit. I thought we were going to intrigue and history and philosophy and politics, and you go right to the spiritual heart. So notice his response in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I have to say, I don't understand. Jesus calmly and patiently answers this rather silly objection. You think there's any way that he thought Jesus was talking about a physical transformation where you shrink back down to embryonic size, go back through the process, and come back out again? Of course not. Of course not. Let's read verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's not, I'm talking about fleshly birth like you are. I'm talking about spiritual birth, and you know this. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. But he still, Nicodemus, refuses to face the real issue that Christ is trying to address. He kept up this charade of miscomprehension. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And look at Jesus in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And do not know these things? 
Is it possible you can be a Pharisee, member of the Sanhedrin, a scholar, a lawyer, quoting chapter and verse, and yet not understand the most basic principles and application of those truths in your life? How is it that otherwise brilliant individuals can miss such basic spiritual concepts? Well, if we just keep reading in John chapter 3, Jesus explains this paradox, this anomaly. Brilliant people who just don't get it. Let's go down to verse 19. Jesus explained, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and here it is, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Is it possible there can be truth sitting right there and you can look right at it, but you don't let it hit your heart because you don't like what it would do to you and your life? Light has come into darkness, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's the condemnation, Jesus says. That's the problem. You know, spiritually speaking, that old adage is true. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Men's deeds were evil and they didn't want them exposed to the light of truth. Much of the confusion, let's make an application now, much of the confusion people have about spiritual truth isn't because the truth is hard to understand. It's because the truth is hard to apply. The problem for most people isn't a lack of being convinced of the truth. It's the challenge of being convicted by the truth. Understanding isn't the issue. The issue is application, putting into practice that which the Bible so clearly states. Hebrews chapter 4 explains it this way. For the word of God, verse 12, is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God isn't just interesting reading or good literature or, 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 or intriguing history. It is the Word of God speaking to your mind, to your heart, and when it cuts close to home, we as human beings obfuscate, we excuse, we rationalize, we push away because we don't want the cutting to the heart. Which brings me to this point. Conversion always occurs in three distinct sequential steps. If we have note takers, amen, here are three things you can jot down. Three Necessary sequential steps to conversion. First of all, when men and women are presented with the truth of the word of God, the Holy Spirit convinces the mind that what it's hearing is true. It reaches you on an intellectual level. You see the veracity of the argument. You understand it's objectively, qualitatively, quantitatively true. What that man is saying is true. The Holy Spirit convinces the mind of the truth, step one. Immediately on the heels of step one, however, comes step two. Immediately upon receiving and understanding the message, so if you hear it 
Your mind grasps it. You get it intellectually. The Spirit then convicts the heart of the message's application in your life. You understand it from an intellectual level, but as soon as you start to drink it in, you understand that that requires, this truth to which you've been exposed now requires some change or application or something in you has to adapt to that thing you've just heard. That the standard you've just been shown does not match what you've been living. And there's a, certain convince, there's a certain conviction that comes with that convicting, that convincing, I mean. Convincing happens first. Convicting immediately follows. Does that make sense? But friends, even that is not conversion. Understanding a message intellectually or even feeling the conviction on your heart is not conversion. If you receive the message and yield your will to that truth, then the Holy Spirit converts the soul. Convince, convict, and by God's grace, convert. It's a three-step process everyone has to go through. You have to understand the truth first. Feel the weight of it in your own heart and then do something about it in your own life. When the truth of God's word is presented, the Holy Spirit works to convince the mind, to convict the heart, and by God's grace, to convert the soul. Now you could say, well, how does any of this have to do with the book of Acts? We're coming there. Let's go to Acts chapter two. The title of our message this morning, by the way, is found in Acts chapter two, and it's actually found two places in the entire Bible, and the title is Cut to the Heart. Cut to the Heart. It's found in two places in all the Bible, both of which happen to be right here in the book of Acts. We're going to start with the first one in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you know, of course, Jesus has just ascended into heaven a few days earlier, and now it's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been poured out in power, has been, has been raising up a group of people here. The apostle Peter stands up as he often does, but this time he has something good to say. He has the message of present truth, and he opens his mouth and preaches a powerful sermon. The Bible only records 26 verses of it. 13 of those verses are direct quotes from the Old Testament scripture. 11 verses explain those quotes, and two verses make an appeal. He's preaching a Bible-based present truth message, and you have to understand the context. The people who were there listening on the day of Pentecost were the same people who just 50 days earlier were chanting, crucify him. And now in the sober light of time past, in the, in the clarity call of, of Peter's message, the people understand that they've killed their own Messiah. Look at the conclusion here. Acts chapter 2, we'll go down to verse 36. The apostle Peter says, therefore, after his Bible-based presentation, talking about Jesus at the right hand of the Father, he's poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 36 says, Therefore, in light of all that we've said, therefore, let all the house of Israel, what? Know assuredly. He's trying to use the Scripture to convince them of truth, yes? Know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. He gives them a Bible study on the truth that they killed their own Messiah. Now look at verse 37. They understood the message. Now when they heard this, they were, what's our phrase? Cut to the heart. King James, pricked in the heart. Stabbed, poked. Cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Notice they've gone from convincing, they understand is the truth, now convicting by the truth. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? They're looking for a response. They understand the message. They're convicted that they're in trouble and they need help. What shall we do? Praise the Lord. Peter didn't say something like, oh, something to do. Oh, there's nothing you can do. You're lost. I just wanted you to know. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Wouldn't that be the... The worst end to a sermon. Of course there's something you can do. What's the thing they can do? Repent. Look at verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They were convinced. They were convicted. And when they yielded to that conviction, they were converted. Convinced, convicted, and finally converted converted. It's a beautiful passage. But it's not the only one that uses that same phrasing and construction. Let's go to the second time, the only other time that that phrase cut to the heart is used in all the Bible. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen now One of those seven chosen to do the work of the local church. But notice that a deacon's job is not just opening doors and taking up offerings. They should be preaching the word too. We're going to have more to say about those kind of things later in the week. But for our purposes today, Peter had preached in Acts chapter 2 this powerful biblical message directly to those guilty of killing Christ. And their response was to be cut to the heart and to repent. And they were baptized. 3,000 were added to the church. It was a beautiful thing in Acts chapter 2. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen stands up and makes for all intents and purposes the exact same speech. He uses some different words. He uses some different scriptures. But he's making a Bible-based, historically, quantitatively, objectively true case that the people to whom he's addressing are guilty of killing their own Messiah. He stands up and makes this case, this time not just to the people who are attending the feast, but to the leaders of the church, the Sanhedrin, the ones who had condemned him in that mock trial, now are hearing the voice of Jesus through his messenger Stephen. And I tell you, you never hear preaching this sharp anymore. I mean, he's going, it's a beautiful history he gives And they, by the way, they both talk about the heavenly sanctuary in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7. That's where Christ has gone to minister. And he goes in the, look look at verse 48. We'll give you an example of this. However, he says, the most high does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne 
and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has, not, has my hand not made all these things? So they're preaching the, the gospel, following the life of Jesus, now all the way into the courts of heaven, all the way to the heavenly sanctuary, and he's preaching a powerful message. But something must have occurred. I don't know if they rolled their eyes. I don't know if they turned their heads. I don't know if they said something else. But notice there's a sharp contrast. Up until this point, it's been a very logical, very calm, very elucid uh, uh, presentation of gospel truth. But something changes, and he decides to cut straight away to the appeal. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Notice he gives a Bible-based presentation, solid history, and then says, you killed Christ. Now, verse 54. When they heard these things, pause right there. Did they hear what he was saying? Did they understand the message he was presenting? Absolutely. They were familiar with the scripture. They were well-versed in the history. They knew exactly what he was talking about. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were convinced of the truth. Friends, they were even convicted by the truth. Just like those believers in Acts chapter 2, they also were cut to the heart. But notice their response as the passage continues in verse 54. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. Pause right here. Did they respond to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit? Yes, they did. It simply wasn't an acceptance of the message and yielding their will. It was a hardening of the heart and a rejection of the truth. But friends, they were convicted. They were convinced it was true. They were convicted in the heart yet they were not converted. So what makes the difference between the two? It's a matter of decision. Friends, the Holy Spirit's going to do his work of convincing the mind. God's word is true, and you're going to listen to seminars and presentations and sermons this week that are going to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's word is true and his message is right for you today. You're going to be convinced, I guarantee it. I'm also equally assured that the same Holy Spirit who inspired those words on paper is going to apply those words to your heart and you're going to be convicted by something you hear this week. You're going to be convicted that there's a change that needs to be made, that you're in the wrong, that something has to be adopted, something has to, something has to change. The question then is what will you do with it? Will you be converted? Well, that's on you. 
The Holy Spirit's going to do all the work he can, but he will not make decisions for you. He'll woo, he'll lead, he'll convince, he'll convict. But he cannot convert without your approval. Without your cooperation. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But I love Stephen. He wasn't done yet. You know, you would think that would be your cue to be like, I guess no one's listening, I'll go home. Uh-uh. When people started hardening their heart, he's like, this is my time to step it up. Wow. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look. You're reminded, when I hear that look and Jesus is up in the heavens, I'm reminded of that experience of Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness where all they had to do was look at the bronze serpent and live. So he appeals to them as only, with all the language he can muster, with all the emphasis he can pull out. He says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That Jesus you killed is right there. Just look. Verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. You get the picture, they're they're literally trying to physically keep the truth out of their hearts. La, 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 I can't hear you, la, no, 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 no. By the way, these are scholars. These are leaders, administrators. Their only recourse is to go back to a third, third, you know, th- a third grade or a three-year-old even level and just hold it. I can't hear you. No, 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 no. Maybe if I close my eyes, you can't see me. Blah, 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 blah. That's all they've got in response to the cutting truth of God's word. And ran at him with one accord. A little side note here, by the way. When we talk about the book of Acts, sometimes we talk, oh, yes, they were in one accord. In Acts chapter 2, they were convinced of the truth, they were convicted by the truth, and they were converted to the truth, and it brought them into one accord. In Acts chapter 7, they're convinced of the truth, they're convicted by the truth, they reject the opportunity of that truth and are not converted, and thus in their rejection of Christ, they also are brought into one accord. Friends, in these last days of earth's history, there's only going to be two groups those who accept the word of God and are converted by it, or those who reject it and are hardened by it. But both groups will be brought into unity as we come near to the coming of Jesus. Mm. By the way, that willful ignorance, that stopping of the ears, the screaming through the top of your lungs, the doing everything you can to silence the messenger so the message doesn't come in, is one of the marked signs of the last days. This kind of willful ignorance of present truth exemplified by those Jewish leaders who stoned Stephen will be a marked sign that Jesus is coming soon. Let me give you some examples. 2 Peter chapter 3, if you would. Keep going to the right in your New Testament there. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting with verse 3. Here the Apostle Peter is speaking of end time events. 
And notice what he says, knowing this first, that scoffers will come when? In the last days. Now, scoffers do what? Scoff. <laughs> what is scoffing? Give me some synonyms for scoffing. Mocking, taunting, jeering, jesting, joking, laughing, making fun of, deriding, knocking down, tearing apart. They're going to taunt and tease the people of God for their faithfulness. Scoffers will come in the last days, and notice this, walking according to their own lusts, right? Doing what they want to do, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But notice verse 5, for this they willfully forget. Now, I'm not particularly old yet, but I've started forgetting on occasion certain things. But I cannot think of a time when I've willfully forgotten something. I don't know that I could. If I were trying to forget something, that would make me remember it all the more. If I told you, forget about the pink elephant, now you can't stop thinking about pink elephants, right? But they're trying to obfuscate, to push away, to get away from this piercing truth. Willfully forget. And what are they trying to forget? Notice what the scripture says. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. They're trying to forget creation. And the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. They're trying to forget the creation. They're trying to forget the flood. That God is a God of mercy, but also of justice and judgment, and he will take care and make things right. But, verse 7 says, the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They forget their history. They don't want to recall that they're serving a God who someday will come and there will be a day of judgment and reckoning. They willfully forget. They don't want to be accountable, so they push it out of their minds. 2 Timothy. Let's see what the Apostle Paul says about this. 2 Timothy. There in the T section of the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Here the apostle is speaking to his protege, and he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the what? Word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For, and this is why he put a premium on the word of God. Don't preach your opinions. Don't preach what's popular necessarily, but preach the word. Why? Verse 3 For the time will come. He does not say the time might come, or it could happen that. Uh uh. He says the time will come. When men will not endure sound doctrine. What does endure mean? To tolerate, to put up with, to have to go through something. They don't want to sit through a long, boring lecture of Bible truth, especially if it's going to lead to conviction that I've got to make a change. They don't want that. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But notice this, but according to their own desire. This all goes back to John chapter 3. This is the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The people in the last days don't have less of a comprehension of God's word. 
They have a clearer comprehension. They just don't like where it leads. They don't like that it cuts across their favorite hobbies and pastimes and indulgences. They don't like that. So what do they do instead? Verse 3 again, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Please note, these people will not leave the church. They'll just leave your church. He's telling this to to Timothy here. He's saying they're going to go be taught. Everybody loves to be taught. They just don't want to hear what you're teaching because yours comes directly from the word. Yours is convincing. Yours is convicting. Yours leads to conversion. They don't want to be converted. They want to be placated. They want to be petted. They want to be doted upon. They're not going to like you. They're not going to like the messenger because they don't like the message you bring. They will heap up for themselves teachers. In verse 4, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. Clearly the reason they're turning away is because it is the truth. They know it's the truth. They're convinced of it. They're convicted by it, and they don't like it. So they turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I do not ever want to disagree with Elder Gallimore. Let me be clear about that. In the last last message, he said, you know, does anyone like to be deceived? I think there's plenty of people who like to be deceived. Deception is comfortable. It feels nice, like an old easy chair. Mmm, that's the comfort I like. It doesn't challenge you to have better posture or to stand straight or to go forward, to do anything like that. And people will choose deception over the truth because their deeds are evil. That's what he says in verse 5 then. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Let's go to one more. Still there in 2 Timothy. Let's go back to chapter 3. Verse 1. Again, notice the emphasis on end time living here. But know this. Friends, if the Bible says to know this, what should we do? Know it. Whatever it is, know it. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, oftentimes we talk about end time events and signs of Christ's coming. We talk about issues in the natural world. We think of like uh, uh, tsunamis and earthquakes and, or maybe political world, like wars and rumors of war or the economy and, and all the world integrating and all, wandering after the beast, all of which is true. Friends, I believe the signs of Christ's coming are all around us, and soon and very soon we will see Jesus come again. But in this particular passage, he's not talking about earthquakes, he's not talking about war, and he's not talking about disease. He's talking about the moral condition, the spiritual condition of the world in those last days. Notice again, chapter 3, verse 1, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of what's the first thing they're going to love? themselves, their own desires, do what they want to do. They like them more than they like the them Jesus wants them to be. They like the them they are. Lovers of themselves. 
Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the scariest part of all, verse 5. Having a form of what? Godliness. They might even come to camp meeting. Now, that's not to imply they would be the ones coming to morning devotional at camp meeting, but, but you understand what I'm saying. They're going through the, through the motions. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the Sanhedrin, they all look like religious people. They knew the word of God. And these people have a form of godliness in these last days. But what's missing? But denying its what? Power. It's all theory, and it hasn't ever come home. And from such people turn away. He goes on to explain how their lives are governed. For of this sort of those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Now notice verse 7. This is the key. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They can quote the scripture left and right, but who is my neighbor? They can be a member of the Sanhedrin, but do I have to go back in my mother's womb? I don't understand. And Jesus said, this is the condemnation. Light has come to darkness, and you just like the darkness more. That's the real issue. Friends, you're going to be challenged by messages this week. If you go to the main presentation, you go to the seminars, and there, I don't know if you've looked through the bullet, and there's some good stuff coming this week, amen? I pray to God that you will be convinced of the truth presented. I'm certain that'll happen. I'm equally certain that you will be convicted by something that you hear, maybe some things, plural, that you hear. But that does not guarantee conversion to the truth. The question is, what will you do with it? Do you actually want the truth, or are you happy leaving it to be an intellectual, trivial pursuit, an an academic course, uh, ooh, now I have extra knowledge, I can continue my form of godliness, I have more jargon to speak. Are you actually looking to become more like Jesus? Do you want that converting power of the Word of God in your life? always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Friends, the work of the Holy Spirit is to take the truth of God's Word and like a sharp sword, apply it in your life in such a way that you too are cut to the heart and convicted. It is my prayer that you will be cut to the heart this week. Maybe later this morning, during the Sabbath school time, maybe during the main presentation. Maybe it's a seminar course. I don't know. Maybe it's in your own personal study. But somehow the Lord wants to take his word and like a sharp sword, convince you and convict you. And his ultimate goal is to convert you. But you have a decision to make. Are you going to allow it? Or are you going to stop your ears, scream at the top of your lungs, and run the other way to other teachers who teach softer things? Friends, I want to have a, I want to have a, 
and experience in my own life this week that will leave me changed from when I got here. Camp meeting is a wonderful time, amen? It's good to see friends and family. It's nice to gather around. It's good to have good speakers and interesting courses of study. But if that's all we come away with from this camp meeting is more knowledge, always learning, but if that conviction doesn't become conversion, what have we done? What have we wasted our time doing here? Friends, it is my prayer that this camp meeting will give you an opportunity to be convinced, to be convicted, and by God's grace, to be converted anew. Let me ask you a question. I ask it all the time. I just want to make sure. Has our presentation today been clear? Did you understand it? Praise the Lord. Hopefully you're convinced that it was right. Now there might be a little conviction going on in the heart. That's between you and Jesus. But I pray that you don't turn away your ears from the truth. That you don't harden your heart. That you don't stop your ears. You certainly don't scream at the top of your lungs unless it's to say amen. But you'll take this opportunity to recalibrate your life to the word of God. To be converted anew. To allow the Holy Spirit to do the cutting work of transformation, making us more like Jesus. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're a God who chooses to communicate with his people. Lord, apparently your word is able to make us wise unto salvation. But not everyone who hears it will be saved. Lord, let us not be those people satisfied with merely hearing the word of God, but help us to be doers of the word. Lord, we want to be convinced. Send good speakers. Give them things to say. Give them powerful messages to preach. Let the truth be heard in a clarion call. Let us understand the messages presented. Lord, we want to be convinced. But we also know that with convincing comes convicting. We want to experience the pull of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. We want to feel and sense our need of Jesus deeper than we ever have before. But more than mere feeling convicted, Lord, I would pray for that final step of genuine conversion to the truths of God's Word. Lord, help us to be a people who receive the word of God with all gladness. But then they'll make those changes through the power only the Holy Spirit can provide. Let him not just stop at knocking on the heart's door, but let us open the door and let him come in. Help our heart to be someplace that Jesus would want to call home. So Lord, yes, convince us, convict us, and by God's grace, convert us as we are cut to the heart. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.